there's a familiar passage of scripture or verse or two. It's found in the eighth chapter of Romans. And it's verse 28, verses 28 and 29. It's where I'm going to kind of camp out a little bit this morning using a Memorial Weekend pun. I want to turn it down just a little bit. It's got just a little roar, but not much. Bob, thank you. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that is, to be brought to the same form the same Marfe, that he might be the firstborn, the preeminent one among many brethren. I caught a weather forecast on the radio a while back. A guy said we have 20% chance of showers. Well, he said that's not too bad. He said that means that we have 80% chance that the sun's going to shine today, tonight, and tomorrow. Now, I'm not a meteorologist, but uh, I have a strong suspicion that the chances are not quite that great that the sun's going to shine tonight. There are some people who believe in the dark night of their soul that the sun will never shine again, period. That's why this verse is so incredible to believe. All things work together for good is why we translate it. That's really not the best translation. The best translation is the revised, or one like I've read. For God causes all things to work together for good. It's not a kind of a, everything is for the best verse. It's God works all things together for good. I like that the better. For it's more personal and it's more believable. But even that is difficult for some people to believe. Thomas Carlyle said, you know what's wrong with the world? God sits in heaven and does nothing. That's what's wrong with the world. No wonder Martin Lloyd-Jones said that this is the most incredible statement that even this apostle ever made. And he continues to say that in the whole range of Scripture, it is the most comforting of all. If only we could believe it. If only we could stake our lives on the truth that every discard in life's music will ultimately work for its greater harmony. If only we could believe that. We want to believe it, and we try hard to believe it. And sometimes we even quote the verses, the quote the verse, um, in times of trouble when life caves in at our feet, kind of like a guy whistling in the dark as he passes a graveyard. But I don't know whether or not we really believe it. I don't know for sure if we really do. At the top of our head, yes. At the bottom of our heart, no. Well, there's some encouragement when we kind of recognize the conviction that the Apostle Paul had about it. I mean, he believed it. Here was a guy who suffered all kinds of trials. He looked down the red raw throat of life's ugliness and he found an unwavering conviction in the overruling providence of God. 
And he believed that it doesn't matter what happens to a person if he loves God and he's called according to his purpose. God is going to work that out for the best. And it changed his life. It transformed his perspective on life. It turned sighing into singing. And his embrace of that verse in practical living enabled him and his companion to sing praises at midnight even though his, he was immersed in a prison with a bleeding back. For he was absolutely convinced that whatever the circumstance, whether it was seemingly adverse or advantageous, God would work it out for the best. For the Apostle Paul, the chances were greater than 80% that the sun would shine at midnight. Now there are some um, truths that emerge from this great verse. One is that the plan of God is conditional. All things God works together for good. That's the claim. And it is an incredible one to those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. That's the condition. Amazingly enough, this incredible claim has a condition. Has two, as a matter of fact. Now it's important that we know what Paul did not say. The Apostle Paul did not say that God would build a fence around us, His people, and protect us from everything that happens to people in general. That's a lie that Satan tells. He comes to us in our conversion and he says, now everything's going to be good for you. I mean, everything that happens to you in life will be good. And when it doesn't turn out like that, then he comes back to us and says, well, either you're not saved or God has let you down. He does not say that everything in life that happens is good. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't say that God will do everything we ask Him to. For after all, God is sovereign and He has the right to make His own choice. And He doesn't say that everything that happens to us is His direct responsibility. Proverbs 19.3 says that a man's own folly ruins his life and yet his heart still rages against God. What he's saying in that is that sometimes our, the trials of our life are just the consequences of our wrong choices. But what he does say is this, that everything that happens to God's people, if we let love infect it, will turn out for the best. He does say that there is nothing past redemption. But there are conditions to this claim. God does not work all things together for good without qualification for everyone. God works in all things, works all things for good only to those who are specified in this statement. For these two conditional clauses cannot be isolated from the claim and they define and they limit its application. There must first of all be a, a, a correct relationship with God to them who love God. Now it is not to them who trust God or believe God or, or worship God or serve God. It's to them who love God. Now Jesus taught us a lot about what it means to love God. He taught us that loving God is not some kind of shallow sentimental feeling. 
As a matter of fact, one time he said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loveth me. And from that statement and others, we kind of hone in on our definition of what it means to love God. A person who is loving God is a person whose chief desire is to please Him. A person who is loving God is a person who works to bring Him glory, who seeks to keep His commandments and wants to be like Him. And that kind of person can count on it. All things work together for good for Him. For loving God brings a whole new perspective to life. It enables us to see when it's too dark to see. It enables us to trust when we cannot discern. Edward Wilson said this, I know this to be God's own truth, that trials and trouble, disappointment and pain are one thing or another. To the person who loves God, they are but tokens of love for him, from Him. To the person who does not love God and will not love God, they are a nuisance. And the whole thing kind of comes together and it fits together like a puzzle. For somebody might ask, how do I know if I really love God? Well, the best way to tell if you really love God is to measure your reaction to adversity. How can I know if I really love God? Well, how do you react to trials? If you really want to know how you love God, if you're really loving God, how do you react when trials come? Do you act more like Job or do you act more like Job's wife? And the second condition is this to those who are called according to His purpose. You can add in parentheses, for, God, for His people. So that the verse, the, claim, the condition is, to those who are called according to His purpose for His people. For you see, God has a purpose for His people in general, and your purpose in life relates to His overall purpose for people. Now let me see if I can illustrate that. Let's suppose that here is a master pianist, a master uh, instructor in piano, and she sees in this student great potential. And so the instructor comes to the student and says, I see in you great potential. I have a purpose for you. My purpose is that I want to bless this world with a beautiful music that you can perform. And I want to extend myself through you so that other people will know that I have taught you and, that, and they will glorify my name. And ultimately, but not in, the, in, 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 in that priority, I want your name to be glorified. I want you to be recognized. But my ultimate purpose is that through you I might bring my music to the world. Now, as long as that student is in line, is parallel with that purpose, every demand she will accept, every discipline she will welcome, and everything that that instructor asks her to, to, to deny in order to be a great musician, she will welcome because she's in direct line with the purpose of her instructor. But if she's at cross purposes with her instructor, then every demand and every discipline and every requirement she will resist and rebel against. Now watch this. God's purpose for your life is this, that God might bless the world with the beautiful music of His gospel of grace. And He wants to use you 
as a channel through whom He can bless the world and teach the world of His love and redemption. And as long as you're in line with those purposes, everything that happens to you in life, you accept and welcome. That's what He means when He says, according to His purposes. For that means that everything that happens to God's people, if they're in, in, in concert with God's plan for the ages, will use these things that happen to better equip them and prepare them for their ministry. Is that not true? Is it not true that a person who has been through a trial is the best minister in, to one who, has been, who is in a trial? Isn't it true? that a person who has been down life, one road of life with all of its pitfalls is the best one to guide another down that same road. In other words, God said, I'm going to let all things that happen to you work for your ministry in serving other people. But the plan of God is conditional. There's a second truth, and that is this, that the plan of God is beneficial. Now he says, all things God works together for good. Now the crux of the problem is, what does he mean by the word good? How do we define that word? And there are some factors that have to, have to come to pass before we can really define that word. One has to do with timing. For what God sees in life, in his long-sighted love as good we might see as bad or evil or, 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 or a burden or a problem because we tend to look at life in a, in a more temporal and materialistic, from a more temporal and, and materialistic viewpoint. Now, now watch this. I want you to understand this. That a Christian is a person who can be absolutely sure of the ultimate even though he is absolutely uncertain of the immediate. So that the ultimate does not, the immediate does not concern him because he's absolutely certain of the ultimate. The other day I was up going through the sound room and I saw the tapes again of the championship football game with the Ada Cougars, a side I play it a little bit and watch it a little. I turned that booger on, and I saw again that uh, black split in. It runs about a nine flat hundred, get behind our defensive men. And, and I saw that quarterback go back to let loose that, that pass. You know, I, I can remember when that actually happened. I was sitting up in the press box, and, and we all just kind of came to our, our feet because we knew they were wide open, you know, for a touchdown. And I, but I wasn't that upset about it because I knew the ultimate. I knew he dropped the ball. He got right in his hands and he dropped it. As a matter of fact, he dropped five passes that night. I mean, I watched that guy, you know, I, said, I was up there saying, throw it to the black guy. You know, I didn't care because I knew the ultimate. And I watched as they uh, kicked off and, and I saw Russell Black again take the kick in the end zone and step out and slip on the one foot line. I mean, when they put the ball down, it was just kind of resting right up against the goal line right before the half. And I thought, while I was watching that game, I thought, oh no, they'll hold us down here and they'll score before the half and get momentum. You know what I was doing up there watching that film? I was saying, no problem. 
I knew we was going to run out the clock and the half was going to end. And I knew that the momentum was going to turn when old TJ started running in that last half like he'd never run before. You know, why I was so, you know, uh, uh, calm about the whole matter the other day watching that thing up there because I knew the ultimate. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says it's all going to turn out like God plans it to turn out. We've seen the ultimate. He says we're the apple of his eye. That means that we're the most sensitive part of the sensitive organ that he's careful to protect. We don't have to be that upset about the, the immediate because we already have a knowledge. We know the ultimate. It's all going to work out as God plans it. Well, what does he mean by the word good? I think in order for us to understand that, you've got to find, look at a verse of Scripture with me. Now, I want everybody to turn to this verse of Scripture. You guys, don't punch your wife and say, Honey, turn to that. I'll, I'll check out this uh, nap over here that I'm, you know, I'll fan a little bit. You turn, I'll fan. I want everybody to turn to First uh, Peter. I want to show you something. First Peter. And it's a first chapter, and it begins at verse 6. Now, while you're turning, I need to tell you something about trials that come in life. I think that some of the difficulties and the trials that come in life, God permits to come into our life because He doesn't violate, He will not violate our freedom. And we're free, moral agents, human beings. We're not robots. He permits those things to happen. And I think God sometimes puts things into our life in order to bring us to a dependence upon Him. Now, not everything that happens to it is, I've already said that, is His responsibility. No, that's not right. But I think sometimes God puts things into our life to drive us back to Him. And then I think God withholds blessings sometimes in order that we'll feel a need for Him. I mean, He just withholds blessings and He just kind of turns up the volume, kind of fine-tunes because we see everybody else just being blessed and are happy. And God withholds blessings from us because He wants us to look to Him. He wants us to turn to Him and admit our need of Him. Now, Peter comes to talk to people who are immersed in trials and he talks about this trial, he talks about salvation, and then he comes to trials. Now listen to this magnificent statement. He says, In this you greatly rejoice. In what? In this trial, in this suffering. I mean, like parallel is rejoicing and suffering. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, underline, you have been distressed by various trials. That, that is, in order that, now he's telling us why the trials have come, in order that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's just an amplification of Romans 8, 28. Now this is what he says about trials. He said they are necessary. All that happens to you in life, all is necessary. They're necessary. I heard Ron Dunn tell a story one time. Um, I'm going to change just a little bit because this is the way it happens at our house. 
Have you ever tried to nail, drive a nail in a wall with a butcher knife handle? No. And there's one thing in our house we never can find, and that's a hammer. That's the truth. Now, my wife will testify to that. Never can find a hammer. And so we just, you know, we either use the heel of our shoe, literally, that's the truth, or we use a butcher knife handle. And we get these nails up there. It just causes all kinds of uh, fellowship problems, you know, in the family, trying to nail that nail in the wall. Now, can you imagine a carpenter? Can you imagine old Ed going out here and building one of those houses like he's building over by me, and he gets ready and gets his sack of nails and a butcher knife? Can you imagine that? Or a shoe? You can't see that, can you? No, he's going to take the instruments that, that the instrument that's necessary to do the job. Now, watch this. I tell you what, God has a job He wants to do on you. And He has a job He wants to do in you. And He has a job He wants to do through you. And I promise you, He's going to choose the instrument that will get the job done. And sometimes the best instrument He has to get the job done is a trial. It's necessary. Now it's necessary, says Peter, for three reasons. It's necessary to prove our faith, to prove it. I mean, you know, I might have a flaw in my faith. I might have an imperfection in my faith. I want to know it if I do. I don't want to come to a time in life and find out that I've had a flaw in my faith or an imperfection in my love of God. And so God in His gracious mercy and love allows a trial to come into my life so that, I can, so that my faith can be proved so that, it can, so that I can see if there's an imperfection. Let me tell you something. If your faith is genuine, it'll stand any test. And if it's not genuine, don't you want to know about it? If it's not genuine then the test is the way to prove it's, if it's genuine or not. In other words, a trial is kind of like a magnifying glass through which God just kind of investigates our faith. And it's kind of a magnifying glass through which we can evaluate our own faith. It's necessary to prove your faith. It's necessary to perfect your faith, to perfect it. Ron Dunn said one time, he said, one thing I've learned in the Christian life is that if God, if the Lord puts us in a furnace, He's not an arsonist. He's a refiner. Oh man, that thrilled me when I heard that. The Lord's not going to put me in anything to destroy me. He's going to put me into things or He's going to permit things in order to perfect me, to develop me. And the Christians that I know who have the greatest character and the most mature relationship and the most dynamic spirit are the people that have been through the furnace. They're perfected there. Babcock says, the tests in life are not to make us, or not to break us, but to make us. Trouble may destroy a man's business, may develop his character. The blow to the outward man may be the greatest blessing of all to the inner man, he said. For if God puts or permits... Now watch this. This is, uh, this is Babcock talking. He said, if God puts or permits something difficult in your life, be sure that the real peril, the real trouble is that you might miss it if you flinch or rebel. 
That's why A.T. Robertson said, just as the tree is fertilized by its own fallen branches and its own fallen leaves and lives out of its own decay, so is man improved and bettered by trials. He is refined by blasted hopes and blighted dreams. You read the Bible and you'll discover that the great Psalms were born in a wilderness and most of the most of the epistles were written from prison. And the poets learned in suffering what they sang in song. And John Bunyan found that to be true in bonds. And we as Christians may thank God for Bedford's jail. For in suffering is a man perfected. And trials are there for the third reason they're necessary in order to prepare us. Now, I just want to look at, want you to look at that as he says, you can't, you can't separate verse 29 from verse 28. Now, when you quote verse 28 in my presence anymore, I want you to quote verse 29. Well, he says, For them he did foreknow, those he did foreknow, he also predestined in order that they might be brought to the farm of Christ. Now when you put verse 29 with 28, what it says is this, that these all things that happen to us, God uses to bring us to the same farm as Jesus. Now why? He said it. He answered it. He said, in order that Jesus might be the firstborn, and that's a Greek term that means preeminent, in order that Jesus might be preeminent among many brethren, not just us, so that all things work together in order that we might be brought to the farm of Christ so that men might see Him as preeminent. And what that says is that when I become like Jesus, men are going to see Jesus as preeminent and I'm not going to be like Jesus until I go through all things. Isn't that amazing? That's great, isn't it? I can tell you're excited about it. Just jumping for joy. I mean, that thrills me. A guy went into a a novelty shop, and he's looking at these carvings up on a shelf, and there were carvings of, rabbit, of a rabbit. And he didn't know, the, he didn't know it, but the, the, the carver was there in the, in the store. He said, man, you know, those things are pretty expensive. They don't impress me. I don't think that's so hot. And, and the guy overheard, the carver. He went over to him and he said, well, pardon me. He said, I'm sorry you're not impressed with my carvings. He said, if you don't like them, why don't you just carve your own? He said, man, I can't carve anything. He said, I've never been able to whittle. He said, well, it's simple. All you got to do is just get you a block of wood and carve, carve, carve off everything. It doesn't look like a rabbit. I mean, it's as simple as that. Get you a block of wood. Today, you know, you want to carve a rabbit, just get you a block of wood, carve off everything. It doesn't look like a rabbit. and nothing to it. Now, if this verse says what I think it says, it's, it says this. That Jesus, that God looks at my life and He sees everything and doesn't look like Jesus. He's just carving it off. And the way He sandpapers it off, the way He carves it off, is that all things that happen to me, one of these days I'm going to be just like Jesus. Now, one last thing about this text. That is that the plan of God is operational. It says, God works God works. One time some guys came up to Jesus, some Pharisees, and they, you know, and they was talking about the conflict that they saw between Him and God. And this is the way Jesus answered them. 
Jesus answered them with this statement. He said, My Father works. My Father hitherto works, and I also am working. Now, now, now you need to understand what Jesus meant, because in the context, He was talking about the creation. And he, and, he, and he said this in the Tidwell paraphrase. My father is doing the same old stuff that he's always done from the beginning. And I'm just doing what my father has been doing from the beginning. Wow, what a discovery that gives us of God. He's saying what God is doing today is what he did in the beginning. What did he do in the beginning? He created so that what he's saying is this, that God is still in the, in the business of creativity. And, and, and you stretch that on, out, that on out a little bit, and he's saying, this very day that you have, God made this day, and he made the first day and the second day, this very day that God made for you, uh, this very day that you have, God made it for you, just like he made the first one. This is God's day, and I'm going to live it enthusiastically as a gift from him. But then he said, and I too am working. So that he gave us a little bit on the other side of the coin. He gave us a little bit of an understanding of, of not only that God was at work creativity, in, in creativity, but God was at work in redemption. For that's what Jesus was doing. He was in the world redeeming. So that what kind of an activity is God about in the world? He's about a God. He's about an activity of creation and redemption. He's making things, and when it goes wrong, He redeems it. He made this world. He made this day. And if this day goes wrong, He'll redeem it. He'll make it work for good. See, He made this event in your life, and if it backlashes on you, like my fishing rod often does, if it turns against you, He'll redeem it. Oh, what a wonderful God we have who is, not, who, is, who is still at work in the world in the act of creation and redemption. And God's promise is that He'll withhold no good thing from you so that everything that's good He's going to give in your life. Wow, what a word. And I was back there this morning trying to get that train unit to come on. I made all these promises. I was telling my college buddies over here, Whitlock and Eaton, uh, I was kidding them. I said, now, guys, when I make a promise, it's a, I hold true to it. I saw them out there hooking up that unit, and they was kidding me about not having heat, and I made all these promises about not having air conditioning. I made all these promises, and they was giving me a big dig. And I said, now, fellas, when I make a promise, it's, I hold to it. You'll, you can stake your life on it. There'll be air conditioning Sunday. I was really giving them a... I was giving a snow job. I was doing a job on eating. And so I came in here this morning and no air conditioning. You know, how's that going to make me look, you know? So I went upstairs and got in the baptistry room where there's air conditioning. And this is what God said to me, just as plain as day. He said, what are you preaching on today? All things work together. I work together for good. And then God just spoke to my heart and said, okay, Tiger said, let me show you what I'm going to do out of that today. Let me show you what good I'm going to bring out of it. 
Because let me tell you what, this verse was not written 2,000 years ago to be left 2,000 years ago. This verse was written 2,000 years ago in order that you might not, might not put it in your pocket, but in order that you might put it into your life and live it with joy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the great assurance that this word gives us. Now, Father, we look in anticipation for human response to what you're doing in our life. Because we understand, Father, that when we know you're at work, then we're to react and respond enthusiastically and in love to serve you, to get lined up with you. And Father, I'm aware that if I complain when a trial comes, it's probably because I needed the trial. Help me to rejoice and to thank you for everything and all things to give thanks. And to live a thankful life, a life of committed service. I pray that you'll use this time now of invitation to draw people to yourself. Because I pray in Jesus' name for his sake. Now, these are our invitations this morning. Listen carefully. The first invitation is for you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Now, all the things that have happened in your life, God wants to bring together and dovetail to this very moment. Prayers of your mother, preaching of your preacher, the loss, the joys, the birth of a new baby, all things God wants to bring to fruit today in the salvation of your soul. Would you come this morning to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, to be saved, to repent of a, of a life of sinful rebellion, come to a life of sweet submission to Jesus? Secondly, is to come this morning to say, you know, I need to walk closer with God. I, I'm not loving God. I'm not even called according to His purpose because I'm not in parallel. I'm not parallel with God's purpose as it relates to the world in my life. I've been living in rebellion against God. He has a plan for me and I've just rejected that plan. I'm not the kind of father I should be, kind of wife I should be, kind of neighbor I ought to be, kind of Christian I should be, kind of church member. Third invitation is for you to come and place your life in the church. God's people are going to do God's work together in the church. I was telling somebody yesterday, if all these parachurch things that are going on that are so great, if, if we as a church would just do, do those, that, that's the answer. I believe that's what I want of the church, to minister to the world, to care for the world, to have people ministering to the world. Where, where people are hurting. Would you come and join that church? I'm going to lead this church to that place. So help me God. Come and join us. Come and be a part of it. We're going to sing two or three stanzas and then we'll go home if you don't come. I think somebody's going to come right at the first. Will it be you? Let's stand and sing. Come on.